And so the thing in London recently where we got to pollution level 10 and we were told by public messaging that we shouldn't go jogging or cycling because the pollution was too high, rather than saying we shouldn't be driving around because the pollution is too high. And things like that maybe are bad for people's mental health. You know, it'd be better if the government were trying to help us and, you know, have cleaner air rather than tell us to stop breathing because the air is too dirty. Welcome to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well with your host, Sarah Ann Macklin. In today's episode, we are going to be exploring the term eco-anxiety and understanding what that really means and are we suffering from living in a consciously anxious state of where our planet is heading. And to help me explore this, I have a fantastic psychoanalyst, Anushka Gross, who has actually written a book, A Guide to Eco-Anxiety, How to Protect the Planet and Your Mental Health. I found this such an interesting conversation and I hope in some ways it helps explore the reasons why we might be feeling this and actually how we can action on reducing these anxious feelings. This week, Glebe Farm, a British farm located in Cambridgeshire, which champions homegrown produce and supports British farmers, is sponsoring today's episode. Oat milk has recently become the most popular dairy-free milk alternative in the UK. However, the majority of these vegan products are made using ingredients that have travelled enormous distances across Europe, with over 85% of oat milk imported into the UK by market leaders. Now, this in turn adds unnecessary food mileage to the plant-based products that are perceived to be more environmentally friendly, which is why it's so important to consider the provenance when purchasing and buying British when you can. I love Glebe Farms Pure Oaty Barista, which only uses four simple ingredients and is never made from concentrate. They also have gluten-free oat products such as granolas, bread mix and oat flour. Glebe Farm have kindly given our listeners 10% off your purchases via the website www.glebefarmfoods.co.uk when using the code livewellbewell. Head to the show notes with all the information you need as well as the code and the website. Climate change is the greatest threat to global health in the 21st century. So much so that some people are making the decision to not have any children for the fear of where our world may be heading. Anushka Gross is a psychoanalyst and writer in London, and she has written a fantastic guide to eco-anxiety around how to protect the planet and your mental health. So Anishka, welcome to Live Well, Be Well today. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much. Yes. (laughs) I mean, I feel very calm talking to you with the array of gorgeous plants in the background. So it's lovely to be able to speak to you in this setting today. Very good for the mental health side of things. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's why I've got them. (laughs) They help. And so we're going to divulge into all things mental health, climate change, our environment. Do you know what? I thought it would be really good just to kind of start the podcast to basically state where we currently are. So if it's okay with you, I'm going to read out some stats just around our current situation 
of how we all feel about climate change. So some stats, over 70% of 18 to 24-year-olds are more worried about climate change than they were a year ago. That's from YouGov in 2020. 75% of teachers feel ill-equipped to teach on the subject. Only 26% of young people know how to contribute to solving the climate change crisis. And over half of child psychiatrists surveyed in England say patients have environmental anxiety, quoting helplessness, anger, insomnia, panic and guilt. I mean, that's some big stats, aren't they? They're big stats. They're terrifying. They absolutely match what I see in my work. So, yeah, even the, the 25 or 26 percent of people who do feel like they know what to do, I'd say even that's a sort of questionable statistic, because what does that really mean? Or the ones who don't feel like they know might be doing quite a lot. It's just it's such a confusing terrain. Yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine if you're anxious about it, you're more likely to want to do more and actually maybe not consider yourself doing enough. I mean, it's a really interesting statistic, that one, and we're going to really delve into that into the podcast. But I thought it might be really good to first of all for you to explain, because you are the expert on this, what is eco-anxiety? Because it can seem like quite a new term to many people listening today. It's a difficult one. And, you know, there are lots of arguments about it as well, like whether we should call it eco-anxiety, because that makes it sound like anxiety is a sort of pathological symptom, like maybe you shouldn't be so afraid. And I think anyone in the kind of climate psychology movement would say, no, we should be afraid, and that it's not a sort of crazy reaction or a neurotic thing. It's a proper fear reaction to a real threat. And so lots of people prefer these other terms like climate trauma or climate grief, because at least then it's about a real thing. But for some reason, climate anxiety is what we all use. So we just have to accept it. And it's true that it makes people anxious. (laughs) When I think about anxiety... I would think about maybe going into that fight or flight or going into a freeze moment and sweaty palms and a fast raging heart and, you know, maybe even being frozen. But actually, this could be a different type of anxiety where I guess you have to be quite actionable to make yourself feel better around this. Is that true? Is that the right way to maybe describe this? Yeah, exactly. That's the advantage, I guess, of the word anxiety is that, I mean, it can go two ways. So it can make you freeze, it can make you sick, it can make you, you know, collapse or go into denial, or it can sort of push you to act. And so I guess that in a way that treatments, if you can call it that for eco-anxiety, would just be to help people bring their anxiety over to a kind of actionable anxiety rather than an incapacitating one. I mean, in a way, that sounds quite positive, that actually you're actioning and taking <laughs> yeah. action on, you know, the fear of, you know, where we currently are. And I guess there is a lot of discussion about where we are. And I can understand why people can feel really anxious around this, because, you know, how much change are we making? But when we when we strip it down, you know, and we really look at our mental health, currently people are living through bushfires, droughts, floods, crop failures, especially in the UK, you know, farmers are facing problems with obviously their crops year to year and then when we also look at the flip side of how many of us are living in urbanized areas and the lack of connection we have with with nature does seem to be you know many overarching problems when it comes to connecting with nature and also you know the worry about losing our nature as well 
if you look at people in Europe, 74% of Europeans actually live in urban areas. And from that statistic, one to 5% of their time is spent outdoors. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, it's very low. One of the things that's scary, you know, when you start to talk about all this stuff is the number of kind of paradoxes that you run into, because yeah, that's exactly true. And if you're so detached from nature, then maybe you can sort of develop odd, harmful, careless relationship with it. But on the other hand, living in cities and kind of clustering people together is actually in a way a good environmental solution, because it leaves a lot of land free and even, you know, high rise and all those things are sort of potential ecological solutions but then they bring this flip side of making people feel completely divorced from their sort of you know I don't know ecosystems. Yeah I mean it is so important I mean from somebody who works in mental health to have that connection with green spaces and we do know you know in more disadvantaged areas you know a lot of children or a lot of adults have a disconnect with green space and there is that real affiliation and correlation with poor mental health. How important is it that we do reconnect with nature? Because I guess it can have a direct effect on our, on our stress response and our overall well-being. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the things that's great is this sort of reclamation of urban spaces and rewilding in cities. And that kind of stuff is really amazing. That If you can get involved on that level, then you've kind of got everything. You've, you've got a connection with nature and you stay in your city. Because <laughs> if everyone sort of disperses everywhere, like these terrible stories of people sort of cluttering up Cornwall and the Lake Districts because we just yeah haven't got anywhere else to go over the last couple of years. So, yeah, finding balances seems to be the difficult thing but yeah there are lots of ways to do it yeah and I guess it's even things if you are living in cities I mean I feel like quite similar to you looking at your background but bringing in greenery into your house just allowing that green space to even be recreated in your home because studies have shown that the more time that you're in green space actually you recover more quicker from stress so if you live in an urban area you're less likely to recover quickly from stress than if you are living in a non-urbanized area. And I just think that is pretty amazing that literally just your environment has that impact on, on how you recover from stress. Yeah, exactly. It's incredible. And I suppose, yeah, there are all sorts of, like people who have little gardens like me, like a little city garden, you know, rewilding it and letting bugs live in and stopping it being a kind of stressful space where you're mowing it and weeding it and (laughs) treating it like a building. It's like, no, let go and let things be. Yeah, it's really important. So what advice would you give to anyone, you know, to start to reconnect with nature, I guess? I suppose, just try and do it in non-harmful ways. There's another paradox. They're they're all over the place. But, you know, people kind of going on (laughs) yoga retreats in the Himalayas or whatever, that's a bad idea if you're going, you know, from London. Obviously, if you live in the Himalayas, then definitely go on a yoga retreat. (laughs) I would love if somebody was listening to this podcast (laughs) from the Himalayas. (laughs) Hi, anyone listening to the Himalayas. I'd love that. (laughs) Yeah, then... Tell them, yeah, go on a yoga retreat. But this whole this sort of paradox of people, you know, they love animals, so they go on safari or they do, you know, nutty stuff. So it's being very respectful contact with nature seems to be the thing that would be really great to cultivate. That is really true. And going on from, from our mental health and going into kind of our physical health, that's also something that I don't think 
we talk about that much, just about how climate change is actually impacting ourselves biochemically. And something that I love to talk about, because it's, you know, got an arm of nutrition, is, is the gut microbiota. Yes. And it's really interesting. So a few recent studies have shown that a direct exposure to nature, such as living in a rural area or a suburb with more diverse, like, garden vegetation is associated with signatures of a healthy gut microbiome. And so, you know, we do know that our microbiome is our second brain. Yeah. And if you think about it, obviously we're talking about eco-anxiety and there's a big link there towards mental health, but just living in a populated urban area actually has effect directly on our gut microbiome. I mean, it is like a kind of a full circle here that we're talking about. Many people might not be that aware of the effects that it's directly having on their health. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, exactly. And all the different sort of strands of harm, like, yeah, the disconnection, the microbiome, the breathing pollution, just the, the ways we think about the future. It's just absolutely multiple, the, the impacts of climate change on people. Because I do think, okay, just talking for myself here personally, you know, I'm, I try to eat a diverse diet because we know that that links to a more diverse gut microbiome. I try to meditate because we know that that helps calm the stress response and takes us out from our sympathetic to our parasympathetic. And so you kind of have this little checklist of saying, I have a stressful life, but I'm trying to balance it. But then every day I'm walking down Oxford Street, which is probably one of the most polluted roads in the world. And how much is that happening? to my house. It's these kind of small things that are actually just being around such high pollution, such as that street, can have such a big change on, on, on your health. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know, because I know some people at XR who are trying to sort of organise court cases, brilliant court cases, for sort of gaslighting the populace, like governments gaslighting the populace by doing things irrationally. Or, and so the thing in London recently where we got to pollution level 10 and we were told by public messaging that we shouldn't go jogging or cycling because the pollution was too high, rather than saying we shouldn't be driving around because the pollution is too high and things like that maybe are bad for people's mental health you know it'd be better if the government were trying to help us and you know have cleaner air rather than tell us to stop breathing because the air is too dirty <laughs> which then just magically puts you into fight or flight because breath is like the one main thing to bring you back into your parasympathetic nervous system isn't that crazy mm. yeah it's disturbing it's really something. I don't know if you remember. I'm not even sure where this is. This is something just come to my mind after you said this. But wasn't Sadiq Khan trying to build a garden bridge or something like that over London to try and create more, I guess, kind of more green spaces? And it was Boris as well, wasn't it? It was one of those terrible probably, long yeah. plans that <laughs> never came to anything and it cost so many billions of pounds. And I mean, it's terrible if that's the best ad we've got for creating a green space in a metropolis. <laughs> that's a bit of a worry. It really is. It really is. I mean, I don't actually remember hearing that, but that is quite worrying. And I think if I did read that from somebody who's an avid runner, I would be like, I don't know what I'm meant to be doing. Yeah, exactly. I think that reaction is what so many people feel. And in a way, that's sort of what eco-anxiety is. That's what sets me off. You know, I think, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, somebody needs to be doing something. We all need to be doing something. But then what and how? And yeah, how effective is it? Yeah, that's so true. So... Anyone listening to this, please do keep exercising outdoors. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, definitely. That was a couple of days and now the conditions have changed. <laughs> 
But, you know, trying to not panic anyone too much. We're trying to reduce eco-anxiety here. But I guess it's just really good to kind of lay out the foundations of all these things that when we talk about that term, we specifically will link it to one thing. But actually, there's a variety of areas here that are all we're impacting these worrying feelings. And it's true, as you said, using that term can sound quite traumatic. But I guess we all experience the worry day to day of where is our world going, especially after, you know, the copper 26 in Glasgow and seeing, you know, are we actually making the right movements in the right directions quick enough? There is a genuine panic, I think, from a lot of people. And if we look, you know, from the last 80 years, we've lost half of our ancient woodlands, which is really worrying. And one in 10 species in the UK are actually facing extinction. So how can we be proactive? Because you mentioned something earlier that when we do fit, when we do realize this fear of maybe losing our planet, how quickly it's going, actually, this can make us be more proactive and take a stand. So, you know, how can we harness this anxiety in a positive way? Like, what can we be doing as, as individuals to start making these changes towards protecting our planet? That is the sort of trillion million priceless questions I mean it's because there are so many different things and the messaging around it again is really really complex because you know people are always being told you know this thing of saying oh don't even bother about recycling because they don't even recycle it properly and that's such a drop in the ocean just no people should recycle just because that's not the solution just keep going with recycling if you want to be you know vegetarian vegan or eat a more plant-based diet with little bits of this and that you know these are all worthwhile things to do and while it's true that you know being a really big activist and lobbying governments and that stuff is really worth doing or withdrawing all funds from damaging businesses if you've got a pension just have a clean green pension try and have an ethical bank account you know all that stuff as well as you know recycle coffee cups or well, don't use coffee cups <laughs> like the big and the small whatever you can do whatever fits with your life whatever you know whatever's possible or viable then do it because you'll feel terrible if you're lobbying the government and going home for a kind of cheap beef burger or something you won't feel right in yourself so yeah or ordering a delivery or other delivery companies are available but ordering <laughs> a, a service where it's coming on a motorbike and that transport of your food it might even seem small but if you're doing that a few times a week it's, it's all adding up isn't it Yeah, exactly. And I suppose maybe finding a balance as well. I mean, this is terrible because you can get so, what is it, self-punishing, I think, once you start to go down the track. And then I think that does for a lot of people. If you have to be perfect, otherwise it's not worth it, then that can just be too much to bear. So yeah, maybe you try really, really, really hard and then you have a delivery and then you get back on track afterwards or (laughs) that slips are kind of part of the process. Yeah, I think that's really true because we can elect a lot of shame onto ourselves doing things wrongly and I think first of all you know it's about just being conscious about it so actually just being aware I think is probably the number one starting point isn't it just being a little bit more aware of your daily actions and then how each day you can make a positive change because we are humans and also life stresses get in the way there might be times when we don't have time to cook dinner or, you know, the shops have closed next door to us and that's our option and that's okay. But it's, I guess it's about the full picture here, isn't it? And from an expert, what is one of the most ways to kind of reduce our carbon impact? Because I think a lot of people do think it's about going plant-based, but there are obviously a lot of other important areas that you can make to reduce that. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think the more different strategies that everyone employs, the better. Because if we all did exactly the same thing, exactly the same time, if we all started eating like, I don't know, really terrible processed vegan food or, you know, from January onwards, that that wouldn't be good for the environment. So flying is really a huge one. Flying less is a really good idea. And it's funny, I was reading, that's only 10%, I think, of carbon emissions are from flying. And the other things are from industrial farming, from fossil fuels more generally, and from also fashion clothes. So that's a huge one. It's such a big, I mean, much more Actually, I think flying is 2.5 and fashion is 10%. So, you know, in a way, what you wear is bigger than the number of flights you take for most people. But just thinking in all those different areas, sort of what could you do? What could you tweak slightly? What could you shift? What could you bear to sacrifice? And you don't have to be a saint. I guess that's about going into things like, I mean, when I lived in New York for for many years when I was modeling, actually, there was amazing secondhand shops, vintage secondhand shops that called thrift shops that you would go into and buy your clothes from there. And, and similar in Paris, they've got incredible ones where you can get gorgeous designer outfits for a minuscule of the price if you hunt. And they've got great thrift shops online and you've got First Day Collective and lots of different rental apps where you can rent your clothes now so instead of buying something for a new occasion every time or even clothes shopping with friends I mean these are all really great ways of you know looking more at actually the impact of you know do you need to buy as much as you are in your wardrobe they're all really important ways of actually looking at the full picture which I'm really glad that you mentioned that actually which is fashion yeah it's true thrift shopping is just such a way forward it's so good I'm just complete devotee nothing else <laughs> but but I did wonder as well in terms of sort of orienting your thinking because there's all this stuff sort of about positivity and negativity and how you manage it because if you get too depressed you know there are people who kind of go down this really terrible routes I think like the voluntary human extinction movement where people just say oh humans are so awful it's better that we all you know get off the planet as soon as possible and if we just destroy ourselves then you know whatever and apart from the fact that I don't agree there's also the fact that if we do that we're going to take down a lot of other stuff with us a lot of other animals a lot of other plants biodiversity is going to be you know screwed it's not a good idea so if you don't go that negative, but you do kind of take on the seriousness of the problem in a big way. So it's not about trying to sort of be jolly and say, it's okay, might be okay or whatever, but it's say, no, this really is a real and horrible thing. When you take that on, you basically, you do get depressed. You do have a crisis. You have a horrible few months, uh, you know, yeah, whatever it is. It's a really nasty experience, but you do tend to come out of it with something you just think okay so that's serious that's real what do I do from here and then it's you know not ordering a delivery or buying secondhand clothes or whatever really easy and it's not a kind of annoying program that you have to stick to it's like no that's fine that's a good idea let's just do that Absolutely. I think also another one to mention, which is something that I've become, I guess it's maybe my step in it, is food waste. Yeah. And many of us, you know, I guess might not think that that's a huge contributor, but even just trying to reuse or freeze your food or working with sustainable food brands like Oddbox, who look at all the surplus fruit and vegetables that might have been thrown away, even these small things are great steps. Or what's it, composting? 
using your kind of leftovers and, and, and composting it if you've got anywhere to put that outside. These are all great ways, I guess. And that's also then helping connecting with nature because when you're composting and you're maybe putting it in your garden, that's also kind of helping with the full, with the full circle. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And the idea that, oh, there's no point in individuals doing their silly little stuff is really disproven. If enough people get into those sorts of things, then it does make a difference. And it does sort of force companies and force force governments to make shifts if they see that they're sort of behind, that they're doing bad things and we all actually do care. (laughs) It, It makes it much more difficult for them to carry on. You have written a book all about this topic, eco anxiety, and how to protect the planet and your mental health. What was your drive behind writing this book? Like, Why was it specifically that you wanted to approach this topic? I don't know if I would have done it, just I was asked because I'd been writing about it already in The Guardian, I think, because there was this big report called the Greenlandic Perspective Survey. And it was the first report about the impact of climate change on people's mental health. And they studied Greenland because the changes are so big there. It's like either especially, you know, very cold places and very hot places are changing fastest and temperate climates like ours are kind of in the middle somewhere. So when I read the survey about Greenland and saw that it was really everybody was just absolutely reporting really terrible at highest suicide rates, domestic violence rates, alcoholism, or just depression, all sorts of things. It was very, very real. And I thought, well, that is what I see in my therapy practice that, you know, people come in and they really talk about not being able to sleep because they're just, you know, thinking about coral reefs or they're thinking about wildfires and they literally, and then they can't go to work or all these younger people saying that they're never going to have babies because, you know, it's irresponsible you know, it's bad for the planet and it's going to be bad for the baby. And the people were just talking about it all the time without really having a name for it or without really knowing that everybody else was also talking about it. So it seemed to be a really good idea to say this is a thing, ideas together around it. How has it been perceived from people reading the book? Because obviously I do feel like it's quite a new term and it's great that now we're actually kind of putting a name to this worry around the future of our planet. What was people's responses to kind of hearing about this book coming out? I think it's been quite different responses. I mean, I've had some amazing ones, like very generous people saying that, you know, help them through a thing. I'm really glad about that because the worst thing is to produce another object like a book and it doesn't help anyone. And it's about all this stuff that would just be, that would make me feel so horrible. But some people say they can't bear to read it because they're so anxious that they're going to read a book, they'd rather read a book about something else. And that's one reaction. Yeah. And some people say it made them more worried. And I actually think that's quite good because it's got lots of, you know, sort of factual stuff in it. And maybe somebody else saying, no, this is a real thing made them feel bad for a while but then they said no it's good it's better to know like being real about all this stuff does seem to help people even if it's not very nice to sort of pass through that moment of taking it on yeah absolutely and you said something there I was put in a situation once with somebody I was on set with and they were getting married and my kind of follow-up question was do you think you're gonna have children after getting married and they were really cross with with my question of of saying no I don't believe we should be bringing children into this world it's a very selfish step and that really kind of opened my eyes for the first time this was probably about six years ago so it wasn't recently but understanding that many people have a view 
around not wanting to bring in a child into the world because of where the world is heading. And I think it was two women last year actually became sterilized because they didn't want to bring a baby into this world. And in one way, that can seem very drastic in people's thought processes, but it's becoming now more common. And as you've just mentioned, that's something that you saw. What's your reaction to that if somebody comes into your therapy center and says, I've sterilized myself because I don't want to have children for the reasons of climate change. I find it just hard for the people. I mean, if people have to do what they think is right and what they want to do, I really sympathize with the birth strike movement and all those people. I think it's a really good idea to take a really tough line. And if that, you know, freaks politicians out, then good, you know, they're doing a great job. But when people sort of just matter-of-factly say, you know, I'm not going to have a kid, it's irresponsible. Sometimes I think, you know, where's that going to register? It's just upsetting, like, because it's saying that there is no future. And when people say that in a very sort of factual kind of, well, I'm not going to have a baby because there is no future, then I think, wow, can you hear the enormity of that? (laughs) And what are we all going to do? You know, it's so big. What would your response be back to, you know, there should be hope, there should be hope for a future. It's a very hard, I guess, argument to understand, isn't it? Because you are, at one hand, yes, we are in a world that has a worrying kind of perspective going forward on it because of the rising temperatures. However, can we actually make enough change collectively to stop that getting worse? Yeah, it's such a good question. Actually, it made me think of this phrase that I've been hearing so much in the last week, even though it's been around for a while. But people keep talking about toxic positivity. And I think that is useful for the climate movement, because the last thing you want is, you know, I don't know, people, oh, it's okay, it's going to be okay. But you don't want just to be purely negative. And one of the things that I was really moved by, actually, was someone, a woman in her 30s who I was talking to, who had decided not to have children, because you know, for all the reasons that we know. And she went to a climate conference, and there were two marine biologists there who were women, and they were both pregnant, and they were both absolutely on the front line, observing change, following the science, like the most informed people who could really see you know the catastrophe unfolding in real terms but they also had enough they allowed themselves enough hope about the future to have children and they're really you know people who've thought about it a lot and for her that really made a difference she just thought well in a way it's a gamble it's a risk we don't know how things are going to unfold over the next 30 years or whatever but maybe you can afford to hope a little bit that hope isn't stupid if you have hope, that might force you to push harder for change. I think if we don't have hope, then we're in a really bad state of affairs. I think hope is part of not just the climate, but I think in the world of how we approach life, we have to have hope. And life is interchangeable, it's unpredictable. And I think if we don't have a form of hope or a sense of positive thinking or a sense of actionable change, then I guess the question would be, what's the point in life? (laughs) It's a bigger question, isn't it? And it's not just about climate change. It's about kind of every aspect of of your overall kind of day-to-day health and well-being. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess there are different kinds of hope. And I suppose untangling this sort of Pollyanna-ish hope from radical hope (laughs) or hope that, you know, really takes into account 
risk and change and rather than a sort of hope that blinds you. That seems to be where, I don't know, we should try to go. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yeah, I guess the number one thing we hope that we hope that people will hope. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> To come away from this with some positivity and, you know, could you expand a little bit on the toxic positivity that you just mentioned? Because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I find it such a helpful expression because, yeah, that means what it says in a way that if people are trying to stop you worrying about something real, and I suppose, yeah, it could be used in so many fields where people are like, don't worry, dear, it's all going to be okay. Or, you know, you're just being silly or it's all, you know raw then that's very upsetting to people and yeah that's like shutting down something a reality and it could be very disconcerting in a way it can leave people in a very sort of derealized state and so how to be real without crushing people seems to be a much more kind of helpful way of thinking about it yeah I think that's a really nice kind of way to put it actually and it also allows you to know that how you're feeling is accepted and that it is real um, I think that's something that's really important to acknowledge sometimes the emotions that you're feeling and obviously as you said taking the steps that you can to help in reducing it something that you mentioned in your book is that actually this type of anxiety that you could be experiencing related to the environment things like meditating maybe a short walk or some deep breaths isn't actually the most helpful in these situations and I do find that fascinating mm. oh yeah it's a funny one I suppose because there's so much you know there's all this quite I don't want to be rude but quite bland kind of generic messaging around climate anxiety and it's always talk to your friends and go for a walk <laughs> and you could say that does verge on toxic positivity <laughs> you know you really have to engage on other levels at the same time and then talk to your friends and go for a walk <laughs> yeah but without the that other engagement true. I mean there is a lot of kind of overarching advice around how to reduce anxiety but I guess it's very individual for that person but I guess on this a big thing is actionable change is leading the way to kind of really help this and I guess there's a lot for people to get their head around when it comes to climate change so what advice would you give to people who are maybe listening to this and just feeling overwhelmed but wanting reliable resources because something that I find hard to navigate is outlets of information that are over sensationalized or they actually induce anxiety for the wrong types of reasons as you said that basically allow you not to allow to live in any hope and they just create an overwhelming sense of fear that the world is over for you where would you say is kind of the best place for people to start understanding this a bit further Actually, everything you've just said seems to frame it in a way, because it's not like there's sort of one reliable source of information. And sometimes I know that, you know, organisations like XR or whatever, you could say, are just trying to terrify people. And I have a lot of sympathy with them for trying to do that, because I think, well, you know, people have been a bit slack for quite a long time. So maybe give people a shake but then there's the opposite end and it's been that's been the question for scientists I think is how much to alarm people or how much to protect people or sort of where to pitch it given that everything is an estimate everything is sort of conjectural and they're guessing in a way they've got a lot of data and they've observed a lot of change and you know so it's a proper 
scientific procedure. But at the same time, we don't really know how things will unfold, what would happen first, what's not that bad, what's worse than we think. It's all quite chaotic. And so I suppose just to keep a kind of critical eye and to keep hope and sort of, yeah, be with other people who take it seriously. Actually, another thing that I hear about a lot from people, especially from younger people who are engaged with this stuff, is that it can put them at odds with their friends. That If they're seen to be too alarmist, then their friends don't like it. But then they don't like their friends because they think their friends are complacent or whatever. And so it creates these real difficulties in friendship groups or inside, you know, one-to-one friendships. And I suppose to be really careful around that stuff and to know, yeah, lots of other people are experiencing exactly those things because nobody really knows where to pitch themselves, what the real risks are. That's what sort of is absolutely unclear. And that's the nature of the psychological problem that nobody can tell you how to fix it, what the real risk is, what's really going to happen. It it can't settle. In terms of the parasympathetic nervous system kicking in, usually it would kick in when the risk has gone down. And so you know, you know, something, the tiger's got away, whatever it is. And so now you can start to calm down. And the problem with climate change is that you never know what the risk is. It never kind of goes away. It's always, you think, you know, one thing's getting better, then you hear another thing's getting worse. And so you you have to do stuff to take care of yourself, to sort of look after yourself within that set of possibilities because there's nothing fixed. There's not one trustworthy source of information. There's not one treatment. There's not, you know, there's not a single thing. It's a volatile situation. And so that is what eco-anxiety is, is dealing with that. That's a really good point. I guess we rely on leaders from different countries around the world to make these decisions for us. And so because you can't act, change the action yourself, it is, a, it is very anxiety driven. You mentioned something really interesting, which I think we're seeing in a lot of other movements, such as, you know, vaccinated against the anti-vax, Brexit against, you know, non-Brexit, kind of many different groups of segregation that we're kind of starting to seeing of different polarizing opinions in society. And I guess there's one that you mentioned there around people being very passionate and activists against environmental causes. You know, if you look at Greta and how she's taken that lead against other people who don't have that much involvement with it and maybe aren't as passionate. For people who maybe listening to this and could be on either set of groups. They could be the person that's very passionate about it. They could actually be the person that wants to understand more about it, but doesn't have that much passion surrounding it. Now, how do you navigate those situations when you have such a strong sense of your own voice, but the people that you're around don't seem to match it? Yes. I mean, that takes just incredible diplomacy on all sides, I guess. Yeah, that's another one where it's not simple. Actually, this is an experience I had last week. It's very strange. Early to meet a friend and I took a long route around to meet them. And on my walk was a street called Bond Street in London, which is where all the sort of luxury fashion houses are. And they have these big windows with really kind of, you know, the most expensive clothes. I wouldn't even be able to afford like one sock in that street. And But I took that route and I thought, even though I'm, you know, 
panicky, you know, beyond belief about the climate. I thought, no, I'm just going to enjoy looking. I'm going to look at the windows. The things are beautiful. Just, it's fine. And there were some protesters on the street protesting about the use of fur in Montclair. And they were shouting. And they were sort of shouting at everybody who walked along the street as if we were bad people because we were on that street. <laughs> as if we were letting bad things happen and colluding by being there. And it really alienated me, even though, you know, I'm a vegan. I'm on their side. I'm <laughs> I'm one of them, but they annoyed You've me. You've written a book and, and about so, it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think how you address people is really important and really thinking carefully about how you engage with those arguments and, and not pushing people away is, yeah, counts for a lot, even though obviously the frustrations can be big. Yeah. And do you know what? You said something really interesting there about arguments. And actually, maybe it's about kind of having that softer approach and actually having the discussion. Because I guess when we can feel very passionate about something, we can let our emotions, you know, really guide us into getting our point across. And that can also reject people's opinion on what we're trying to say, because they feel very defensive. I guess that's kind of a, a big part of, of having these open conversations is about having them in a, in a more approachable way, as you said. Absolutely. Because I suppose one of the risks with the climate movement is that it's been kind of characterized as a sort of miserableist philosophy. And we're all these, you know, terrible, unhappy people who want everyone to give everything up and, you know, eat really boring food and wear boring clothes and only, you know, stay at home and don't you know have any fun. And it's terrible if it's seen that way, because, you know, climate change is not fun. That's really not no. fun. <laughs> so, yeah, just by slowing down a little, we can preserve the fun. It's true, actually, because as you're saying this, more things coming to my mind. But there was a thing last year when I think, it, and I might not be getting this right, so I do apologise for anyone listening if my facts aren't correct. But there was protesters laying down on a motorway, protesting around climate change and stopping the use of cars and obviously getting their message out there. But that actually caused ambulances to not come through. And I think there was a death related to that. And so when you look at the bigger picture, I guess it is how you bring this message across in an important way, but also, you know, there are more detrimental ways to do that. And I guess that's one explanation of it. Yeah, exactly. It's always so complex. It's, it's awful. Because I really feel for those people lying in the motorway at the same time as, you know, obviously you feel for the person waiting for an ambulance. And yeah, those sort of divisions that it creates are very hard to bear. Yeah, absolutely. You know, apart from obviously making sure that people can buy your book and understand this in a more detailed level. Don't buy it from Amazon. Don't buy it from Amazon. Ooh, <laughs> Don't buy it from Amazon. <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. My publisher would probably slap you. You can say whatever you like on this podcast. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> you can say whatever you like. If that's what you don't want people to buy on Amazon, then people do not buy Initials <laughs> book on Amazon. <laughs> Buy it from the BUL's newsletter, which will be coming out with this yeah. podcast. <laughs> but I kind of want to leave people with actionable takeaways of one, how to reduce their anxiety, and two, where to go from here, really, where to go after listening to this podcast. I kind of want people to take some nuggets from this and go, right, this is what I can do to start making a change. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, everybody does Googling and you can sort of find out lists of, you know, good 
ecologically aware things to do. But I do like the Climate Psychology Alliance are a great organisation. They have a good website and they organise these things called climate cafes, which sometimes happen on Zoom and sometimes happen in real life, but where you can talk to other people who experience climate anxiety or who are engaged with that, you know, have worries or whatever. But they're great places because you can talk very frankly. No one will give you any toxic positivity. And you can also find out what other people do. So, you know, if there are things going on in your area that you don't know about and you go to a local climate cafe, then you might find out that people are, whatever it is, you know, rewilding hedgerows or, you know, anything. And, you know, lobbying parliament or whatever they're doing, whatever level. So those are great places because you get the sort of alleviation of just being able to talk frankly at the same time as real practical advice. Also, that's probably, you know, targeted to you, whether it's, you know, sometimes it might be, I went to one for psychologists and that was great because, I, you know, <laughs> it's just very helpful to me. That's one good thing. Fantastic. And I always love to finish the show with asking everyone who comes on how they themselves live well and be well. Oh, gosh, that's such a good question. I discovered yoga during the pandemic and I'd always been a bit, I don't know why, I don't know what my resistance to yoga was. And I got into Zoom yoga because there was nothing else, you know, <laughs> nowhere else to go. And I just absolutely love it. And it seems like, you know, I cycled to the yoga studio. It seems like the most harmless thing is very... <laughs> I don't know. And I breathe. And in a way, I can sort of say, oh, activism is where it's at. You know, don't worry about deep breathing and going for walks. But actually, what really helps me is yoga. So you just find out whatever we and dancing. I love dancing. <laughs> but, oh, I yeah. love dancing. I love that you said that. I just that's a big way of how I live when and be well is dancing around my flat. Yeah. And it's a way of expression, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of people really got into yoga. And I mean, I loved yoga for a while, but I guess I became more of my daily routine because there was more time freed up in my day to actually give myself that half an hour of access to make sure I am performing yoga. But I guess sometimes we just forget how good it feels to stretch and like move your body. Yeah. And actually the thing I, maybe I didn't know, cause I've got a, lots of metal in my back. I had scoliosis. And so, so I didn't know about the whole sort of, you know, diverse bodies and all that kind of thing that yoga is super inclusive. And I did not know that. I just thought it was the opposite almost. <laughs> and once I'd grasped that. That's everyone fear that they think that they can't go because they're going to be judged or everyone's going to be really bendy and flexible. I'm the most inflexible person in the world. So after doing this <laughs> since I was 18, I still can just about touch my toes. But I mean, that's just my body. So I'm at acceptance of that. And I guess somebody else who I took, a very dear friend of mine, I took to yoga for the first time last year. And she can seem to do every position and she's never done it before. <laughs> and I guess, you know, that is <laughs> one, just how our bodies work. But two, you know, it's all inclusive. Yeah, it really is. And that was a revelation and it's brilliant. That just made me love it. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Well, I think that's such a lovely answer for you living well and being well. And Anushka, could you please share all your platforms and where people should go and buy your book for our listeners? Well, so buy the book from your local bookshop. You can order it. Any bookshop can order it. So, and I think, I don't know, it's funny. There are other sellers apart from Amazon, I think, online, if you, if you don't have a bookshop near you. I've got the most ridiculous Instagram in the world, so I can send pictures of cats to my kid. So I mustn't mention that. But, but people, I'm very easy to find online and people can certainly email me whenever they want to. 
Amazing. And what's your website, just in case people would like to contact you? Oh, yeah, it's my name, anushkagross.com or .co.uk. I've got both. Fantastic. Well, I'll link that one in the show notes, maybe okay. not your Instagram account for cats. No. <laughs> I'm sure it's delightful either way. <laughs> no. <laughs> Another good thing for your mental health that's very positive. Yes. <laughs> Anishka, thank you so much for your time today and covering this really important topic on eco-anxiety. It's been fantastic to speak to you. No, big pleasure to meet you and good luck. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Live Well, Be Well. If you did enjoy the podcast, please do leave a review and a rating. It means a lot to get engagement from our listeners and our community, and it helps broaden the reach of our podcast too. Until next week, I hope you all live well and be well. Before you go, I have something new to tell you about. There's brand new bonus content waiting for you with every new guest I speak to. These are exclusively for my inner circle of Apple subscribers. To listen now, head to the Live Well, Be Well show page on Apple Podcasts, where you can activate your free trial and you can enjoy the podcast without adverts.